Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. I'm Abby Martin, here in studio with Mike Preisner. Normally these episodes are just for patrons, but today's story is so interesting, we wanted to make it public for everyone. But if you support what we do here at Empire Files, please donate to us at patreon.com empirefiles to make this work possible and to get access to our library of exclusive content. Many of you may know that there's a major effort by the state of Israel to criminalize pro-Palestine activism in the United States. I myself filed a lawsuit challenging Georgia's anti-BDS laws, which are on the books now in over 30 states. But that's not the only legal attack route they're taking. There's a whole other front of trying to criminalize not just pro-Palestine activism, but pro-Palestine speech itself. This year, there was a truly stunning attempt in California to do just that, where an Israeli law firm sued a Palestinian-American named Suher for, get this, a Facebook post simply contrasting a female Israeli soldier with slain medic and international hero Razan al-Najjar, who was the subject of our documentary Gaza Fights for Freedom. But here's the real kicker. This Israeli law firm didn't try to punish Suhair under California law or even U.S. law, but waged a huge legal campaign to get a judge to punish her under Israeli law, presumably hoping to set a groundbreaking precedent to hold all U.S. citizens under the domination of a fascistic Israeli legal system for pro-Palestine speech and activism. This legal saga is so bizarre and it gives an important window into the behind-the-scenes tactics being wielded to try to silence our nonviolent movement for justice in violation of our constitutional rights. Without further ado, I'm very pleased to be joined by Suher Nafal, as well as her attorney, Haytham Faraj. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Suher, why don't you walk us through the day that you made this post? Back in 2018, on June 1st, the day that Razan al-Najjar was killed, what was the impetus behind you making the post and what did it say generally? Um, I was just, you know, reading my timeline and Miko Pellet had shared a post off of the IDF uh, Facebook page. Uh, And ironically, later we came to find out it was an old post. You know how sometimes when you click like on an older post, it sort of gets regenerated, but I didn't notice mm-hmm. that. I just assumed it was a recent post. And he was, he made a, a statement, you know, his caption was something along the lines of, you know, how disgusting it is that, you know, Americans are joining the IDF, but essentially the IDF had, the caption was, um, meet Rebecca, uh, an American who left the United States and moved to Israel to join the IDF. Um, she's decided to leave the um, the education realm of the IDF and join, you know, join the force on the field. And, you know, sort of they're bragging about how proud they are of her. And a young gal standing there holding a rifle, you know, just and of course that triggers anybody who's Palestinian. And I, I don't know, I just immediately thought, you know what, I need to take this girl's picture and put it next to a picture of Razan. And the caption was good versus evil. And then I said, here's an American gal who, you know, young gal who went to a land she has no ties to, to join an army, to, you know, contribute in the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. And then on the right, you have this 
lovely young Palestinian who's per, you know whose sole mission in life is to save the lives of others, a nurse who was sniped and killed by by an IDF sniper today in the field. Nowhere did I write that it was Rebecca who who killed Razan, but unfortunately, um, that my followers and readers, you know, just read it wrong and decided to switch up the words, and it just went viral that it was Rebecca who killed Razan, and the rest is history. I mean, it was shared millions of times. It was there were articles written about it. It was big news for for 24 hours, I think. Uh, the next day, I. I went back and posted sort of to um, make it very clear that that's not the post, you know, it got away from me, the post. I couldn't really slow it down at that point. So I just wanted to make sure and um, put out a post that says it. I never said anywhere in that post that it was it was uh, Rebecca who killed Roseanne. And something told me to do that. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I knew I had this instinct that this was going to come back to me down the line. And so I thought, I hope this covers me and, and makes it very clear. And uh, yeah, that came and went. Um, and then September 13th, I uh, was just, you know, here in, in Orange County and, and I, I was walking to my apartment from, from a little walk with my dog and I was approached and handed this uh, $6 million lawsuit. <laughs> so, wow. Um, I'm going to jump in here because, I mean, I think that moment that Razan was killed, we were all following the Great March of Return pretty closely, people who are pro-Palestine activists and, of course, Palestinians themselves. And I think that that was a moment when everyone really just paused at the sheer horror, at how devastating it was that this young woman's life was taken, who was the first female medic out on the field. Um, Just an incredible woman all around. And I actually remember seeing... You know, that's how social media works. It's like you can post something and then it just gets taken off and reiterated. And, you know, it it turns into something completely different than what it started. And I remember seeing what people had taken your you saying and making it something else. And that's just funny that I remember that at the time. Um, But it's it's interesting that you even made sure that you edited it and said, like, look, this is not who this woman is. And it's interesting also that whoever did do that wasn't the person that they decided to go after. Um, as you mentioned, this post became viral. And you said, you know, there was all sorts of articles written about it in Israeli media as well, right? And I'm sure that you received uh, quite a bit of backlash from Israelis. What was written in Israeli media about it? Some of these articles online uh, people can actually post and make comments on the bottom of these articles, sort of like social media, but they're the magazines, you know? And so I know there there were tons of comments that were made, but I just didn't really look through them. I didn't want to. I, I, was, I just didn't want to get aggravated. But there was one that I did just sort of peek, and I saw somebody writing... Um, somebody wrote, we know where she lives. And they, and they put my, my, my um, address in Illinois. I was living in the North Shore suburbs of Illinois at the time. It was an apartment that I'd lived in prior to moving into the house I was living in at the time. So they had my previous address. And that just, I was like, holy crap, this is, this is serious. So that was it. And then I just sort of didn't, I didn't look. So thankfully, I, I didn't receive anything. I didn't really receive any emails. Um, yeah, so I, I yeah, it's, I didn't really, uh, yeah, I kind of dodged that bullet. Um, 
you know, it's it's interesting because, uh, you know, the if you look at the main IDF's Twitter account, you know, at IDF, uh, the account is in English, which is not the national language of Israel. It's, it's not in Hebrew. It's in English. Uh, the main IDF Facebook page, also not in Hebrew. It's in English. So, you know, their social media is very much for an American audience, for American consumption, um, for uh, obvious reasons we don't need to get into here. Um, but, you know, you were using an image that they were posting for propaganda purposes, right? Like saying, look how great it is to come and join the IDF. Even if you've never been here before or don't know anyone here, you can join the army from your home in Palo Alto, California and, and come fight a war, uh, you know, in here in Palestine. Um, so, you know, they were using her image for propaganda purposes. You didn't dox anyone, but kind of what was used against you was you were like exposing this person and putting her in danger and bringing all this negative attention to her when it was, of course, the other way around. Correct. Yeah, exactly. And you did what hundreds of people do every day, which is just troll the IDF essentially on social media. And for almost two years, nothing happened. But suddenly you were notified, as you mentioned, that you were being sued, a six million dollar defamation lawsuit, but not under U.S. law, under Israeli law. Haytham, break all of this down for us. Yeah, uh, it was uh, uh, a fascinating and uh, unique approach. Uh, I think I can say with confidence that they allowed the statute of limitations to pass. And that, that just means that the period within which someone must bring a claim uh, before a court to pass. Uh, for defamation in the United States, I shouldn't say, but I shouldn't talk about the U.S. In California and most other states, it's a year. Uh, one year is probably one of the shorter time periods allowed in the law for uh, to bring a claim for an injury to a person. Uh, personal injury is two years. Some states have three years. Contracts is somewhere between four and seven years. And that's interesting because of the emphasis we place on the right to express oneself, right? And so if you're going to claim you've been injured by words, you have a year. After that, the time is gone. Your claim is stale. Uh, it can never be revived. You're done. What they did in this case is they waited until uh, that period, that one-year period had expired. And then they brought uh, the claim in California, uh, seeking to use a single Ninth Circuit case as the basis for a California court to have jurisdiction over the claim by using Israeli law. And uh, that's when the battle was joined, basically. Uh, and clearly what they were hoping to do was establish some sort of precedent <clears throat> by which they could then... Um, bring claims against all BDS activists, all activists for Palestine, all critics of Zionism, all critics of Israel um, under this new precedent that would have been set. Right. And and let's talk about that, you know, because several lawyers worked in concert to override California law and apply Israeli law instead. Um, why do you think, Haytham, there was such a big legal effort 
to do this, which involves, you know, more than one law firm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, no, they 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 brought in uh, uh, the, the the legal. Is it a firm? I, I guess it is a Shurat Hadin, an Israeli firm. Uh, they retained Mr. Michael Weiser here in California. And then they brought to bear uh, resources in the way of experts. And I'm sure there were other people working behind the scene because uh, soon after the complaint was filed, we got hit with a series of motions, uh, which is uh, not very common. Between the period that a complaint is filed and the time the defendant has to respond by by answering, denying that they're responsible, whatever it is. There usually, usually isn't motions practice, but they began to hit us with one motion after another, seeking to apply the law of the foreign jurisdiction, Israel, asking the court to do a conflict of law analysis, asking the court to consider the uh, Israeli interest in having Israeli law applied in California. They uh, brought... Uh, Bose Schnoor, who is a, I guess for lack of a better, better term, uh, an Israeli law expert, if you will, who has testified in numerous cases on behalf of Israeli claimants uh, for damages from funds held by the United States belonging to Iran and other countries that we've accused of uh, terrorism. Uh, and, and so, you know, they, they brought this guy on to uh, uh, to tell the judge why Israeli law should apply. He had a declaration. So I, I knew that we were against some some uh, heavy legal uh, resources. Uh, and so we, we you know, we it, it consumed us for a number of months to make sure that we put in the right arguments in front of the, the, the judge and the right law in order to win this case. Another question for you, Hathen, before we go back to Suher, is how much more draconian was the Israeli law they were trying to apply here? Um, I know that, of course, it was a $6 million defamation lawsuit, but under Israeli law, defamation is actually punishable for a year in prison, if I'm not mistaken. And so were they just going for the money or were they trying to actually enact the full extent of Israeli penalty? Yeah, Mike, that's that's a great point. They, they wouldn't have been able to enact or... Um, to have the court uh, penalize Suhair with one year imprisonment, uh, it would have still been a, uh, a monetary fine. However, what, was, what is draconian about the law, and perhaps this is what they were after, is the fact that in, under Israeli law, truth is not a defense to defamation. I mean, that. You, you got to step back for a minute here and think about this. You're journalists. Uh, by its nature, defamation must misrepresent something about someone, right? You, you must say something that is untrue, which causes harm to a person, to a person's reputation. Under Israeli law, the truth is not a defense unless it's in the state's interest. So the flip side of that is anything that is not in the state's interest, which, you know, anytime you criticize Israel, it's defamation, even though what you might be saying is true. 
Uh, can you, you got to ex- wrap your mind around that for a minute. Yeah, expand on that a little bit because I, I think that's really hard for people to actually comprehend what you just said. It, it is hard. We had to go through it a couple of times. Uh, under the law of every state in the U.S., of just about every civilized country that I'm aware of, truth is a defense to the claim of defamation. We all... If your listeners aren't aware of what defamation is, it's a, it's a statement made that is untrue about someone that hurts the reputation of that person. Uh, so so it, it must be a statement that is untrue. Because, for example, if I accuse someone of, say, being a terrorist, and that person is not a terrorist, I may have just engaged in the act of defaming someone. Unless that person is a terrorist, right? And, and the reason I say that is because I think that's where we have to start fighting back on this battle. In Israel, truth is not a defense to defamation unless the statement is in the state's interest. So, so the counter argument to that is anytime you say something that is not in Israel's interest, even if it's true, it's defamatory and therefore actionable. That is unbelievable that is truly unbelievable i mean I, and so in israel you get you get i guess and this is the next step we're not in israel thankfully you get to you get sent to jail for a year for criticizing the state of israel i i'm pretty speechless i i thought i knew it all when it, come, it came to israel's draconian nature but that is truly beyond the pale and so this is like you know israeli citizens or palestinian citizens and if they just are simply criticizing israel they can just even though it's perfectly true and accurate they have somehow made the criticism of israel synonymous with defamation yeah i mean if you think about it it's not really a a a, a law that's probably being applied to israeli mm-hmm. citizens unless right. they are people like the, the people we're familiar with who have criticized israel or palestinian activists jews that that uh, support the palestinian cause and so on Unbelievable. Zuhair, bring us back to what was going through your mind when you realized that you were getting sued for defamation, because quite a bit of time had passed before this happened. And so I'm sure it was nowhere <laughs> in your like consciousness that this was like going to happen. I mean, just talk about that moment and, and just subsequently, like what you went through mentally. You know, I, again, I was, I was shocked, but not surprised at the same time you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like because I knew I knew back then I know them I know how they operate you know and so so I was sort of like here we go here it is I saw this coming but then I but then I still was like come on are are they kidding and I couldn't even read the complaint really I I, my heart was (laughs) was racing and thankfully I have you know a handful of friends who happen to be attorneys of course I call my activist attorney friends immediately, Samira, right? Call her immediately. She, everyone's just like, calm down, you know, go see an attorney. There was a, a mutual friend of ours, Sammy Meshney. He's here in uh, in Orange County. I called him. He was able to squeeze me in immediately and sat in front of him. And so I, you know, it, I was just sort of like in disbelief, but I knew I had to take action immediately and get this addressed immediately. And like, you know, rally the troops, right? There's no way this is going to go down. So um, I, I kept my cool, but, and then thankfully, you know, Samira 
reached out to ADC. She's like, let's go to ADC with this one. And then ADC um, introduced me to Haytham. And so as soon as I had that conversation with him, I mean, it, it all happened within like, you know, 24 hours. Um, I felt good. I felt like I had the right representation and let's, you know, ready to go. But it's it still, you know, every so often I'd be like, holy crap, I have a $6 million <laughs> <laughs> like how's this gonna play out you know uh so i had to i had to do a lot of just calm down sahara just it, it'll be fine and and i didn't even talk to him i just like didn't even want to talk to Haytham. like i i you know, i didn't call to check up on where he was month by month by month i was like okay this is not going well but i don't even want to i don't want to i don't want to hear it you know and he hasn't he didn't call me much at all uh so it was just i just was waiting it out and trying to stay calm um, for the most part, I knew he was really confident and I knew he was going to be able to have it dismissed. Right. Uh, but the longer it took, the more I was like, crap, these guys are going hard. I, I, I had a sense it was he was he was battling. Uh, so, yeah, for the most part, I was OK. I, I tried to stay confident, but I, I definitely had some moments of holy crap and had to had to call my friends and, and have them calm me down. And, well, especially when you just like take a moment and just take a step back and really realize the scope of how insane it all is. You know, I mean, sometimes I do that, too. I'm just like, wh there are 30 states that have that literally have like forced is Israel has forced their laws to change to make people sign a loyalty pledge. Like, that's a lot. It's a lot to kind of take a step back and be like they have you know they're they're undermining the constitution powerful. of the united states like th this is a yeah. powerful force this yeah. is a very powerful force and they targeted you when this lawsuit was filed i mean that that's public record right were there articles written about the fact that this lawsuit was filed were you like people who knew you were they just like oh my god like this is insane or were you just kind of taking stock and just like you said just kind of Staying calm, laying low, and and putting your trust and hate them. <laughs> uh, I I I saw that. Okay, so a handful of my friends n saw the articles that were written from Israeli um, right, uh, journalists. There was just a few articles mm -hmm. that said, you know, so and so is suing a, a BD. They kept calling me a senior BDS activist. Which is not senior. Yeah, I'm like, I'm yeah, like, yeah. I'm like, I'm not. I don't really call myself a BDS activist. I mean, I push BDS and I talk about it and I, you know, bring bring awareness about it, but not anyway. But um, so I knew there were articles out there. I purposely did not want to tell my followers and get everybody riled up. I wanted to just keep my mouth shut and just let it go away and then talk about it after, God willing, you know, it was dismissed. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, my closest family and, and friends um, knew about it, but really, I did not tell a lot of people about it. And I asked Haytham, I said, what do I do? I just, you know, he goes, keep mm -hmm. doing what you're doing on social media, keep posting, you know. And I, I, I had a sense that they were probably watching my posts. So I wanted them to, to see that I'm not, I don't give a crap. I'm going to keep, you know, I'm going to keep posting. I'm not going to change my, my, uh, my habits. And so I did that, and and thankfully, you know, the good news came out. But um, yeah, I just I just had to I, I did I have I had a lot of faith in Haytham, and and um, just prayed that this judge was not going to be somebody that was going to be be bought. <laughs> right. So thankfully, thankfully, we had a, a good judge, a, a you know a principled judge. So yeah, 
Unbelievable. And Haytham, this soldier, as you mentioned, represented by uh, an Israeli law firm called Sharat Hadin. This is a pretty serious business. Um, talk a little bit about this organization, its ties and other legal challenges this group is mounted against BDS activists and other people around the world. Abby, I, I can't tell you that I've become an expert on them. I was, I was mm-hmm. a little too busy trying to uh, figure out how to uh, counter their arguments. I do know that they claim to have raised somewhere in the neighborhood of about one hundred eighty to two hundred thousand uh, dollars. It is said that uh, the person uh, who has founded the organization or leads it has some ties to the Mossad. Um, look, in, in my opinion, reading the the complaint. It, it was uh, it was beyond the scope of a claim of defamation against an individual. It read like a an indictment on behalf of the state of Israel, and this is where I began to think about uh, uh, there, there are some federal statutes that prohibit uh, people from representing foreign governments. You cannot represent a foreign government in the U.S. without registering with the State Department. It's called the Foreign Agent Registration Act. And I really began to seriously consider reaching out to the DOJ, and I still might, to ask them to investigate how the ties between the uh, law firm and the state of Israel, the law firm here in the state of Israel, the Israeli law firm that is in the United States uh, claiming to represent an individual when in reality the, the, the complaint was full of statements about why Israeli interests should prevail in this lawsuit. And so the, the short answer to your question is I'm not, I don't know the history of this organization, but it sure behaved like an official agency of the Israeli government. Right. Uh, indeed. Um, and just what I read briefly to prepare for this uh, on Electronic Antifada, when they were featuring the case, they did talk about how this law firm has also gone after trade unionists for participating in BDS in the U.S. and also New Zealand activists who were trying to lobby Lord, famous singer Lord, from not playing in, in Tel Aviv, a concert. And they lost both of those cases. But I think that that's not the point. Ultimately, it was, you know, obviously a smear campaign and a censorship campaign. Um, But yeah, I mean, just really incredible that they've also launched these cases, you know, across the world (laughs) in New Zealand. You you know, if you think about it, uh, uh, I, I can't, I can't bring to my mind an example of where a private organization lobbies on behalf of its own government for its own government's interest in a foreign country. <laughs> you, you know, think about that for a minute, because we, we just don't, you know, you might lobby on your own uh, economic interests in a foreign government, in, mm-hmm. in a foreign uh, place, but, but I can't uh, think of any examples where private organizations lobby on behalf of the interests of their own governments in a foreign nation. That's what these guys are doing here, and that's what these guys are doing all over the world. You know, what, what is, how does BDS impact private citizens? It does not. It's a boycott of Israel. It's a call to boycott Israel to influence politics. And so why is it that these so-called private organizations are so vigorous 
and um, prosecuting these types of actions unless there is some connection to the state. Right. Absolutely. Um, hey, Sam, how, so you initially filed a motion to dismiss. Can you tell us what happened when you filed that initial motion? Yeah, well, the, the, yes, we filed the motion to dismiss. Uh, and that's when we began to get hit by these uh, motion, these other motions that they filed. The motion to dismiss was simply, look, judge, this was past the statute of limitations. Uh, you know, frankly, Mike, if in, uh, in every other case, probably filed in the state of California, if a lawyer files past the statute of limitations, you're buying yourself a professional negligence lawsuit. You know? if, <laughs> right. if, if, the, if Sohair had come to me and said, someone had defamed me, defamed me and, I'm, and then I waited after the year had passed and filed the lawsuit, I just committed professional negligence. <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, as a, as a self-respecting lawyer, I, I would never want to file something after the statute of limitations. It just reflects poorly mm -hmm. on the lawyer. It, it's kind of a, a clear law. And so I thought, I thought this was an easy case, and that's why I uh, assured Sohair, look, this is past the statute of limitations. I know what they're arguing. This, this is not going to see the light of day. Um, and then as soon as we filed our motion to dismiss, we began to get hit with these motions asking the judge to consider Israeli law, Israeli interests. And so it began this six months battle of back and forth filings. Uh, eventually, we we filed our anti-slap motion, uh, which was our counter sort mm -hmm. of counterpunch, uh, counter lawsuit, if you will. Uh, the judge consolidated all the uh, briefings into one uh, set of set of one day hearing or a, a series of hearings to happen happen in one day, and then um, analyzed the case. And on that day, they made a different argument, yet another argument. They came up with the Bose-Schnorr uh, new argument. And that's when the judge says, okay, I'm going to take it under advisement and take a look at it again. And then we waited another month before the final decision came out. And that's when Sahar was, she can probably tell you, I, I told her, I called her and said, I think we won this, but we're not done yet. And, and for the next month, she was, you know, she did call me all the time or text me all the time. Because she, she was, was uh, she was panicking. Oh. That's what, yeah, I think that was the hardest four and a half weeks of, of all of it. Wow. Um, you know, so eventually, of course, the judge dismissed the lawsuit entirely. Um, and I think any anyone on the outside, you know, just looking at just reading something quickly about this case would say, well, of course, yeah, they tried to bring in Israeli law and any judge in the United States, of course, would throw out a case that was no longer legal under California law or state law and ad adopt another country's uh, laws. Of, of course it was thrown out. Isn't that obvious? Um, but Hatham, were, were you ever at, were, did you think it was a guarantee that the judge would throw it out? Or were you ever uh, unsure about whether this could hold up? And also, you know, that was also a lot of pressure because uh, obviously they were going for a precedent here also to then use it on others. And so w what were your thoughts about that? Yeah, Mike, uh, that's a great point. I was very confident at the beginning and I began to lose confidence as as time went by not because I wasn't confident in our, in myself or my team, but as I began to read these um, arguments based on case, or at least one case that I really wasn't familiar with, and it was, as I said, it was a Ninth Circuit case that did 
the Ninth Circuit is the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, where they allowed the law of a foreign jurisdiction to apply in California. It was a case between two persons in New York. One was an Egyptian, was one from New York. And without getting into the, the nitty-gritty gritty details, uh, there was some similarity to this case, except that the defendant, Suhair, uh, was a California uh, resident at the, at, uh, at the time of the lawsuit, and the defendant in the other case was not a resident in California. But the arguments were vigorous. Uh, I, I will say they, they made a, uh, a great argument. Uh, I, didn't, I wasn't persuaded. I, I don't think the judge was persuaded. But I can't say that it was sort of a, an easy uh, you know, statute of limitations type analysis. It was, uh, it was a conflict of law analysis, uh, conflict of laws. As any lawyer will tell you, it was probably one of the more uh, uh, complex issues that lawyers le learn about in law school. And then we never see them again. We learn about it in law school and, and we rarely mm -hmm. come across it. And so uh, th this was a, uh, a, a unique argument. Uh, it was uh, uh, it could have gotten some traction. I'm glad it didn't. Yeah, they were prepared for a fight, clearly. And they had obviously consulted uh, with many, many people to try to formulate uh, the argument that you're talking about, hate them. And you mentioned the anti-slap motion. Uh, they ultimately are having to pay back the legal fees that were spent, correct? That, that's correct. Uh, we, essentially, California uh, recognizes a right to file a countersuit if it appears that a lawsuit is filed to try and uh, suppress speech, uh, prevent speech, uh, or a lawsuit is used to curb speech, uh, legal speech. And, and we fashioned, uh, I think we, we, uh, we had the facts to be able to make that argument to the judge. Um, they made some concession. They had to make some concessions that, uh, so here is a, semi-public personality, she has many followers, uh, that this was a matter of public interest. And so once you have those factors in place, she's treated more like a journalist than just a private person. And as you probably know, uh, there is some leeway within the law for a journalist to uh, make an error, an excusable error, mm -hmm. especially when you're talking about a, a matter of public interest. And in Sahara's case, she quickly even though it wasn't defamatory, she quickly attempted to remedy the misunderstanding that was uh, being spread by other people. And uh, I think the judge, I think he saw it for what it is and granted our uh, anti-slap motion. Uh, and so, yes, there'll be, uh, well, not they, uh, Ms. Romsishkaya will, will get our, our bill and uh, I believe the judge will enter judgment against her. She was an, she's an American as well, right? the plaintiff yeah she's as i understand she's uh she's an american from boston uh <laughs> i believe she was born in russia uh -huh. and uh i may be wrong and then uh, immigrated to israel to uh to join the idf interesting case then it's you're talking about two americans you know one that that goes and moves to israel joins a foreign army uh but yeah use trying to use israeli law to 
to basically suppress the speech of another American citizen. It's it's quite a fascinating tale um, that I just don't think is comparable to really any other country in the world that that you could really do this. Um, Mike, did you want to? Yeah, add I just had one one more thing uh, before we move on from the the wrap up. You know. You said something earlier, Haytham, about how they waited until after the statute. It was like, do you think, I mean, they could have filed a defamation suit within the year and and sued for defamation under California law. Um, but do you think that they intentionally waited for the California law to expire? So just so they could bring in this Israeli law factor? 100 uh, percent. Mike, I have no doubt. And here's why. This case would have died on the vine would not have seen the light of day had they filed uh, in California within the one-year statute of limitations because it is per se not defamation. Uh, so Harris said nothing that was untrue, right? And uh, California and most of the U.S. states have what's called the single public publication rule. Um, she published and then she almost very quickly corrected the misperception. There is no defamation there. That's, that. Had they filed here, they would have gotten no traction. Um, now, the, the, forget California for a minute. Let's say that she missed the one-year window, even though it would seem to me that any backlash from the initial posting and the misperception of it would have been felt almost immediately. I mean, things get stale pretty quickly on social media, right? And so I, it would seem to me that any harm she may have uh, suffered would have happened within that period. And that's when she, it would have been most likely to say, let me take some action. But let's say the year passes, she's passed the statute of limitations. Well, you can sue in Israel. You, you can bring a lawsuit in Israel, get a judgment against Soher, and then try to come and execute in the U.S. There are all sorts of treaties that would have allowed them to do that. Okay. Uh, you could have sued the people that actually reposted the post and, and uh, uh, genuinely made <laughs> yeah. defamatory statements, mm -hmm. but they didn't. And so the reason I say I'm 100% sure that this was a, uh, a scheme uh, by design is because they waited that period of time and then they tried to come and have Israeli law apply. This plaintiff could have sued in Israel. She would have gotten her judgment and then come and execute in the United States. It would have gone through some legal uh, procedures. Maybe she can effectuate it. Maybe not. Uh, but she chose to wait until the statute of limitations had run. She chose not to sue people that might have truly been uh, or might have truly engaged in defamatory acts and come against the person who was doing what? Continuing to make statements to expose Israeli crimes, Israeli war crimes uh, against Palestinians. And, and so that's that's why I'm sure, I'm certain that this was by design and not by happenstance. And Suhair, that's exactly what the soldier's lawyer essentially said uh, when they said, quote, Rebecca's lawsuit is the spearhead of our struggle against the global boycott movement against Israel. This is a message to all BDS activists who should know that they, too, may be held responsible for their anti-Zionist activity and may even need to pay a heavy price. So here, what is your response to that essentially just blanket threat? Um, can I can I say bad words? 
<laughs> please. <laughs> they can go F themselves. I mean, it's, you know, it's whatever. I, I'm over it. I'm, I'm so sick of these guys with their empty threats. And yeah, I mean, look, people, they, they've, they've definitely caused people's lives to be ruined. I, I get that. Um, and so it's not it's not a laughable matter, but this just this just kind of confirms that we we are protected, right? By 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 US laws, in my case by California laws. So they can bark all they want. It's not gonna deter me deter me. It's not gonna deter any of my friends and peers. I mean, we're in this battle to win. You know, it, it, we're not we're not going to stop. If anything, I've you know said this before. This has just emboldened me to um, continue to expose them. I wanted you know I want to do more of it. I want to encourage, and I do encourage my my friends and followers to not be afraid and to continue to post anything they want about or you know anything they feel should be exposed with regard to Israeli crimes and and apartheid and and their you know ethnic cleansing policies so i i'm not i'm not worried i don't i'm not threatened i'm not afraid and they can try all they want we're just gonna fight back i mean we can do what they're doing you know essentially absolutely were you surprised at all when you saw that they were essentially like using the soldier's case to just you know they were they were essentially using her as a vehicle to tamp down on bds activism and they pretty much made that very clear with the statement. Were you surprised at all when they were saying stuff like this? No, not at all. Absolutely not. I mean, she, yeah, she was used as a, as a tool, as a puppet, essentially. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, you know, who knows? I mean, she probably, she herself probably had no intention on bringing a lawsuit, right? I think, I think they, they found it. They, they saw an article probably, you know, float, float by their desk and and sat on it like Haytham said probably sat on it and just waited it out knowing that this was all planned by them by Shurat Hadin and, and that organization I don't I don't see that this girl this young girl um really had any intentions I mean she's since left the IDF it doesn't surprise me at all I mean they're they're desperate uh yeah because they know our voice is just getting louder by the day and our army is getting bigger and more powerful and, 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 and they've been exposed. I mean, it's not just us Palestinians speaking up. The world has seen enough um, to know now uh, that, that they're just an apartheid, you know, illegal occupier. Um, what's going on with the ICC also. Um, so it's time. I think things have shifted. I believe, you know, it's it's all a matter of time that they're going to, um, they're going to pay for their for their sins, as they say. So we just have to keep forging on, and and again, just um, getting stronger and louder. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's interesting that they chose your case to try to do this thing, uh, in particular because. It's not just about the IDF soldier who was, uh, Haytham, as you said, like the perfect plaintiff and, uh, you know, the, her look and her story and all of that stuff. Um, but because the post was connected to Razan al-Najjar, which was a huge, you know, PR disaster from Israel's standpoint, um, that 
that case really got out so much attention and really, you know, made them look uh, horrible. Um, and they had to put so much effort into kind of crushing that story and creating a counter narrative and all of these things because they were so um, exposed by their their killing of Razan al-Najjar. And so I think that, of course, um, that's a component of it, too. It's not just about you. It's not just about their plaintiff. Uh, but because it 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 related to the story that, that they really uh, want to put a, put a lid on. That's a great point, actually. Yeah, I think that is a good point, Michael. It, it's, it's, uh, it's not something that I thought about, but, but that makes perfect sense that this was sort of their, uh, their, their, their counter campaign to something that uh, left a very dark mark on uh, Israeli behavior. Definitely speaks to the desperation Um, And, you know, these lawyers really thought, I think, that they could apply Israeli law. I don't think that they were going in there with just empty threats. I think that they really thought that they could bend uh, judges to their will, considering the fact that, as we mentioned, 30 states or so have already changed their laws uh, to very flagrantly undermine the U.S. Constitution and our First Amendment rights to prevent anyone from participating in the BDS movement in order to work in these states. I'm currently engaged in litigation against Georgia to overturn such a law. We know that Arkansas just ruled in favor of the plaintiff just mere weeks ago. Um, And I mean, I guess just any comments on that, the fact that, you know, the precedent has kind of been set in a weird way already and totally has flown under the radar in this country that 30 or so states have already done this, which seems so outrageous because this is a direct violation of our First Amendment. <laughs> and and in the case of Georgia, the state legislators, uh, legislators admit that it's because the Israeli government asked them to. <laughs> and they actually brought someone from the Israeli consulate to one of the first you know, hearings to make the case. And so they're kind of openly saying, yes, we are doing that at the behest of Israeli officials. Yeah, I, I think sometimes that Americans uh, forget to whom their loyalty must solely belong. Um, I, I find it fascinating. You know, I, I served in the U.S. military, mm-hmm. and uh, I find it fascinating that that uh, uh, politicians who take an oath, usually with words to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against enemies foreign and domestic, uh, find room within that oath to work on behalf of the interests of a foreign government. And so I, I think we need to have a, a, a sort of a, a discussion, a dialogue in America about what those oaths mean to these politicians. Uh, I will say, I will say that every time a state passes this law, I'm confident they'll all be defeated, by the way. It is going to establish, is going to trigger a legal challenge that that will have precedential value, and it'll just strengthen our personal liberties and civil rights to to express ourselves as the founders of this country and the drafters of the Constitution expected we would. And so 
it's no it's no uh, surprise that uh, ignorant politicians are uh, behaving based on what they feel is their in, in their own best interest rather than the interest of the country to whom they they take an oath. But I think ultimately uh, courts, including courts that may have judges who are appointed by the last president, uh, will come to the right decision. And so I, I have no fear of these laws. We it'll take some time to challenge and to prevail. But I think in the end, we will all be better for it. Well, that's great. And we uh, we appreciate that optimism and and share it uh, as well. Um, Suhair, so, you know, you you, of course, you got this case dismissed and you got your legal fees covered uh, by the uh, people who tried to sue you, which is great also. And so that's a victory in itself. But were you banned from Facebook or did that happen? I, is that correct? I, I had. Well, yeah, I, there were there were a, per- a series of three, four, five years in a row where I was being um, blocked for one reason or another by using the word Zionism wrong or, or, or you know, uh, I was watched quite a bit. I don't know if it was the algorithms or I, I don't know if they had a team of Israeli trolls on Facebook just combing through every comment I made, every post. But there was a, re- there was a, a series of, of months where I was, you know, out of the 12 months of the year and, and 2015 through 2018, I was blocked probably anywhere from three to seven months out of the year, literally. Like it was crazy. And for some reason, I just, I don't know if they sort of took me off that list or did did something changed internally in in the system. And so probably 2018 on up until just recently, I wasn't blocked anymore. And I think, I don't think my activity was as blatant or as I wasn't as some kind of you know, I, I kind of watched my my the way I, I wrote. So up until a week ago, I got blocked again for a week, but it, it wasn't due to anything about Israel. It was something else that I said that was again, I think it was an algorithm caught caught it caught it and it was they deemed it inappropriate. And so I've been blocked for the past week. So knock on wood, <laughs> I'm I'm okay now. I got I think I'm okay. Although who knows? I mean they you know, I may be blocked again for some something, um, but um, it's it's been quite some time since I've been blocked again up until this past uh, week. So I'm just well, saying I, Go ahead. I, I'm actually surprised to hear that you were not blocked as a result of this because Facebook is kind of notorious for capitulating to the U.S. and whatever allies of the U.S. want people's speech to be suppressed on social media. It's it's pretty overt. And I know that Palestinians have been exposed experiencing the brunt of the censorship for quite some time. But now, and you briefly mentioned this, which I think is really, really fascinating because Facebook is actually talking about enacting a policy that makes the word Zionist synonymous with Jew. Um, I mean, this is just absolutely absurd. It would open up tens of thousands, potentially millions of people to get censored or purged from the platform under the pretense that they are making anti-Semitic speech. And I just want to get both of your comments on, like, what the impact of this would be. uh, Suhair, let's start with you. You know, so we'll come up with a different word, right? So we'll we'll call it something else. Again, it's not going to stop us. Um, Hopefully it doesn't. I know there's there are attorneys working on um, from Palestine Legal, I believe, or they're working on that sort of battle now to you know, fight back. I, I don't know where they are, but hopefully it doesn't, it doesn't pass. And if it does, so be it. We'll just call it Israel instead of Zionism. I mean, 
ultimately it, it's the state of Israel that's the criminal, right? And obviously Zionism is, is the root cause of it all, but um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't keep us from, from posting pictures of dead babies, right? It doesn't keep us from posting pictures of, of soldiers arresting 13-year-olds who you know, pee on themselves from being so terrified. So it's, it's okay, so we can't use the word Zionism. Like I said, we, we, we come up with a different word. But it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't um, take away from what we can still expose, right? So it, it, it'll suck and it, it'll be annoying to not, to not be able to use it. Um, but again, I don't, I don't see there being too big of an issue with regard to still, still speaking the truth and exposing you know, their overall crimes and apartheid policies. And hey, then what do you think about that? I mean, just the fact that big tech is so obviously working hand in glove with not only the U.S. government, but the Israeli government to do just such an overt censorship campaign to tamp down on Palestinian voices and BDS. And also like the the impact that it would be to just do something that egregious, which is like, you know, say that you're anti-Semitic if you just simply use the word Zionist. I, I think it comes from ignorance, uh, Abby, because big tech, for the most part, has been a supporter of the uh, the social justice movements. Uh, what I think is missed by these companies, uh, you know, in their rush to do what they believe is right, they want to fight anti-Semitism. They've been lobbied to by Zionists. Uh, to make them believe that uh, anti-Zionist speech is equal to anti-Semitic speech. Uh, but I, I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a backlash. Uh, we all know that uh, being Jewish does not equate with being a Zionist. I, I love, I don't know if you all have read the recent uh, brilliant piece by Nathan Thrall in the New York Review uh, a day in the life of Abed Salama. I want to. I want to. Uh, I, I want to pitch that to anyone who hasn't read it yet. It, it'll take some time, but it's a fascinating piece by a Jewish man living in Jerusalem who unequivocally makes it clear that he has nothing to do with Zionism or the uh, is the state of Israel's. Uh, uh, expropriation, uh, dispossession, and uh, crimes against uh, Palestinians. And, and so I think what's going to happen is, I hope what's going to happen is, you're going to find that perhaps um, those people like Suhair, perhaps myself to an extent, and others will join forces with uh, Jews who don't uh, agree that Zionism represents them, and uh, again, I'm being the optimist here. Uh, and then there's going to be a correction. Uh, I, I just don't see that lasting very long because Zionism is truly not Semitism or anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism, as we all know. Absolutely. And thank you so much, both of you. I wanted to just get closing statements or um, anything that you think that we may have missed uh, from both of you. Suhair, is there anything else that you wanted to say? Well, I just... You know, I, 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 I want, I'm happy that this put Razan's name back in the public, you know, and so um, that's pretty much it. I just, I, I, I 
you know, we, 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 she, it still breaks my heart and the hearts of, of so many activists and so many people around the world, what happened to her. And so um, if this was in her name, this one, this win was in her name, then I'm happy for that. So, but um, yeah, that's pretty much what I just wanted to say. <clears throat> thank you. Hey, them. is there anything that you wanted to add? Uh, no, I want to thank you both for, uh, for making us feel welcome and, and uh, telling the story tonight. I, I appreciate it. Well, keep up the excellent work. I'm so proud to know you both, and I'm so thrilled at how this all turned out. Um, on, you know, you truly are standing on the right side of history, and the precedent has been set to reject such an obvious foreign interference in our legal system. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, both of you, for your work and for coming on the Empire Files podcast. We really appreciate you. Thank you, Abby, and thank you, Mike.